Hello, and welcome to the Grand Stories Profiles in Aging podcast. My name is Dr. Robert Cosby of the Howard University School of Social Work Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. I will be your host as we talk about aging and equity with social justice leaders and community members. Look forward to your being with us. And we're here for another exciting episode of Grand Stories podcast with people with unique and interesting backgrounds who have something to speak to us in terms of social justice and their experiences, both in the field of social work and in the community. And so we're joined here today. Uh, my guest is Dr. Ruby Gordine. Uh, Dr. Gordine has a long and illustrious history in social welfare, uh, in child welfare, and is on the faculty as a, a senior professor at the Howard University School of Social Work. And so I'm uh, here to be able to sp speak to her about social justice issues and about uh, her experiences, and uh, we're grateful that she's decided to join us today. So, uh, Dr. Gordine, welcome. Well, thank you. Uh, and so uh, uh, I know a little bit about your background. Uh, we've had an opportunity to uh, interact and uh, work in, in many capacities, but I don't think I have understood uh, all of your experiences as they relate to your upbringing and some of your experiences related to uh, social justice as you started out your life experience. Uh, so can you tell, uh, tell me and tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, I'm the youngest of three children. And uh, I have an older, had a, I've lost both of my siblings, but my older brother and my older sister. And so um, we grew up in an extended family sort of situation um, where I spent time with my uh, grandparents, aunts and uncles, you know, obviously my mother, my father died when we were very young. And so um, his father, his family took a lot of interest. And so we went back and forth between the families growing up. And as a result, I had the opportunity to grow up in multiple cities. I was born in um, Simpsonville, South Carolina. And um, just recently found out that there was a school named after one of my relatives there. Um, and one of my relatives started the Bethlehem Baptist Church there that my family still goes to. Um, so um, one of the things that um, I think was very uh, helpful growing up is the uh, family really valued education. Now, I remember when um, Stan, my grandfather, one summer, and he made all three of us go to the library every two weeks. We had to get two books, and we had to have finished reading them in that two books, uh, two weeks, and then we would take them back. And so all of us, all three of us, had a love for reading. And you could come in the house and turn us our heads in books, and people never understood it, but we all enjoyed reading. And so... Um, 
I witnessed um, family members talking about political issues of the time. And I was a, uh, grew up in the 60s, so you know there were a lot of political issues. And I would note that they would read the morning paper all the way through, they would read the evening paper all the way through and remark on what they thought was fair or unfair or what was happening in the, uh, you know, in the nation. And so I think that was um, some of my background. I grew up with people who were very uh, committed to what their thinking was. And so I think all of us kind of had that background as well, because once we decided we wanted to do something, we pretty much stuck to it. And so um, I think all of us had a sort of a social justice orientation. And um, and I think it was further filled by um, my attending Howard University during that time where they were very much steeped in looking at social justice issues and um, haven't had that experience and participated in some of the marches that were going on in the city. And there were like a march a week at that time because it was the welfare rights, it was the poor people's march, it was march against the war. So it was a march. If you wanted to march, you never had to look for one. One showed up. <laughs> um, Talking about your time uh, while you were a student at Howard University? Yes. And so, um, and I participated a lot in those marches. I had an interest and curiosity, and I think it helped form my understanding of some social justice issues. Um, and I think it gave me some awareness as I entered the field of social work or social services. Uh, and, and I experienced, at that time, you know, we were just coming out of the civil rights era and so a lot of times when you got jobs, they reflected that. And so my first job was, a lot of people don't know, was as a probation officer in, in Richmond, Virginia. Probation officer in Richmond, Virginia. About how old were you? Um, I think I had just turned 21 because I finished college at 20. So you were 21 years old and you were a probation officer. Wow. Yeah. I know it was actually a joke because what happened is they had a note, uh, a sign on the door where you had to go visit the kids that were um, detained. And it says nobody can enter under 25. And so my coworkers used to tease me and pull me out and said, well, you can't go in yet. <laughs> but eventually, you know, they knew I had to go in because I worked there, but um, I didn't meet the criteria according to what the uh, sign said at the institute. You had the skills and you had the expertise, but you didn't have the age. No, didn't have the age. But uh, it was, and one of the things that um, was striking is the courts at that time were still segregated. And so um, I worked in the, you know, the black unit and then they had a unit for white. And um, the whites were, they had low caseloads, like maybe 25 people at most, and they would be going out, having lunch, having a good time. And we would have caseloads up over 100. I, I remember at one time up to 100. So you and had so, a caseload of 100 clients yeah. that you were supposed to work with 
Right. And, you know, and they had varying levels of needs, but, you know, it was quite a few. And so one of the things that happened, one of the other young probation officers, a male, I think his name was Jerome, and I were, uh, the chief judge was doing a radio show one day. And he had asked, um, and, you know, you could call in. And so Jerome and I decided to call in and we asked why the courts were still segregated. Um, this infuriated him. He came back and laid us out, of course. Um, and I often tell the story in my class because while we were well-meaning to do that, we didn't get to participate in the change, but they did desegregate the court. Anyway, he was not happy with our um, portray. And as I said, I talked to students about it. And I said that not realizing that we kind of embarrassed the court to do something, but we weren't involved in the change, but they did desegregate the the courts. Um, and we didn't think about the impact it may have had on the clients and that kind of thing, but we just thought it was wrong during the 60s when, um, actually this was 69, 60, 70, is that, you know, people were uh, desegregating and trying to integrate and all that kind of thing. And the courts were certainly not the lead of that, at least not the juvenile court at that time. Uh, and so that was a social justice issue that um, I thought was important. Furthermore, I worked with um, a number of uh, Black attorneys who were assigned to the case for the courts to deal with the Black clients. And one of those uh, Black um, lawyers was uh, Governor Doug Wilder. And, um, but the other, um, Black lawyers were all graduates of Howard University. And one became the mayor of Richmond later on and that kind of thing. So they ended up being in very prominent positions. And so I had the opportunity to meet them, you know, very early on in my career as they were, you know, moving up in their careers. And as a result, I got to work, uh, my, I think my first portray into politics was working in uh, for Doug Wilder when he ran for state senator. And so um, I thought that was, you know, all of these to me were affirming uh, experiences in terms of helping me kind of decide how I was gonna approach life or what things would be meaningful for me. Um, so you were also, referencing uh, uh, Douglas Wilder who was governor of the state of Virginia. Right. And so those were meaningful experiences for you. And uh, what would you say was the most memorable uh, contribution that you're most proud of? And why would you say that? What, as a probation officer or you mean in social? In, in, in all of your illustrious career, but starting with probation, if you thought that was an important piece. Well, see, uh, I was one of those people that had multiple jobs. So you got to, and I live multiple places. so. <laughs> it would be, I think each of those offered some insight to okay, me. So you tell me about the probation in, in, in uh, Richmond, Virginia. Uh, were there others in other places? Well, yeah, well, I love that. I also worked as a child welfare worker in Richmond, Virginia. And how I got, because the job I had at the uh, courts was temporary. I took the place of a person who was working on their master's. And so it was a, a year long job and the person returned back to her job. 
And so I got a job in child welfare in Richmond and they were trying to recruit uh, African-Americans because they didn't have many. And it was in child welfare intake. And so the black social workers were trying to recruit people to take the exam and so they could qualify for those positions. So I uh, took the exam, apparently made a good score. And I was in a group and hired for that position. But I was also the only black in that unit and the youngest person in that unit. And um, it was kind of, uh, I had um, two older black women who were in supervisory positions who kept check on me to make sure I was okay in that particular position because of my youth and the composition of the uh, unit. And so uh, I actually wrote an article about both these experiences. And, I, and uh, in the child welfare unit, uh, all of a sudden I was getting all the white clients and they were taking the black clients. And I asked my supervisor, I said, I wanna work with black people as well. You know, I didn't mind working with the whites, but I wondered why um, people decided to do that. And I think it's because it was difficult for them to accept that some of the whites that we were working with, you know, had serious problems because they had to have children removed. They, they were pretty rough situations. And I think they expected black people to have problems. And so that was more accepting to them is that was my analysis of it. Um, but they would say things that I found offensive in the unit. And I think I will say this, my supervisor, uh, who was an older white woman, retired military, uh, I thought she was, she tried to be fair. I will say that. Uh, but unit, uh, there were people in the unit that would say things like, uh, we used to, you know, when you got paid, um, you had to take your check to the bank. Remember those days? And so, so I um, banked at the black bank, the back, the bank that actually uh, Magdalena Walker started. And so one of the workers would say to other white worker who told me that she says, there's Ruby um, bank at the Negro bank. And I'm thinking, you know, how inappropriate is that? Um, then another time, uh, she referred to one of the, I was, uh, I had some clients working, with, uh, waiting for me that were black and we, in the intake, you did a variety of things, adoption, foster care, you know, those kinds of things. And then you referred it on once you decided what unit the children would go to. And so she told me one day that I had a Negro couple waiting for me. And I said, you mean a black couple? And she says, well, why do you want to be called black? I said, because it's a word you can pronounce. Because I thought the use of the term that she was using was inappropriate. And she never seemed to think that her language to me was something that could be offensive. And so you felt that they were insensitive to your, your concerns or ignorance and edu being educated about them, or what was that? Well, I think that there was, um, you know, I guess I would say uh, a level of insensitivity, but I don't know that it was different during that time, if you know what I mean. It was uh, the person who used that language used it all the time. And so when she was using it around other white people, people probably didn't say anything. 
but it's different when you use it around a black person. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then I had another woman. You're talking about the N-word or you're talking about something related to that? Well, you know, in Virginia, they don't say it with the E-R. They say it with the R-A. <laughs> okay. So it's, it, you know, it's a different pronunciation. Okay. I understand. Uh, and but so, for me, to me, it was the same. It meant the same thing. Right. Okay. Um, so you started off in Richmond. You obviously worked in some very important positions. They helped in shaping a lot of what you did. You obviously made a difference with the uh, probation system, and you, you obviously did a number of things with your work in child welfare. Um, how? Well, yeah, I learned to be a, an advocate in child welfare. Okay. I had to fight for several black families to get certain services, and I kind of held my ground on that. Okay. And so you had support of others while you were doing that, both people in the field and outside? Yeah. I told you I had these two um, black women who kind of helped me. Nurtured um, you and took you under their wing? Yeah, and unbeknownst to the people in the unit. <laughs> okay. And mm -hmm. uh, But I have to say that while she didn't always agree with me, my supervisor did allow me to do the things I, I advocated. And she was an older white woman. And so uh, I think she uh, had an affinity toward Black people. And she uh, worked with a couple Black families. And I understand when she passed, she left the state to a Black woman. So um, it was kind of unusual for Richmond. Yeah. And I don't, she wasn't originally from Richmond. I, don't, I can't remember where she said she was originally from, but she had some affinity for that. And, and so I think she tried very uh, hard to be what she thought was fair to me. And, um, and you know, when you res uh, respond as a person and you think things are offensive, then other people say, well, I don't know why Ruby's so, you know, sensitive, but they would say things. Like, for instance, uh, one of the ladies that used to take me out to lunch, it was really a little tea, nice little tea room, was an older white woman. And she used to love to sit and talk to me about her family who were members of the FFB. And if you haven't been in Richmond, right there, the first families of Virginia. And I said, she never realized that her first families were probably people who enslaved my black people. <laughs> and so, but she, the plantation she owners and the wives of, right. uh, what so do they call them? Would, Gentlemen planters, I guess. Right. And so she would never, uh, she loved to talk about that. And it's not like she thought she was being um, offensive or anything. It was just that she was so proud of that heritage. And so in some ways you have to, you know, as I talk about my culture, I guess you have to say that was her culture, um, but not understanding how people who were enslaved would maybe interpret that kind of thing. Because, you know, Richmond, um, I remind people constantly, you know, slavery started in Richmond. I mean, not in Richmond, but in Virginia. <laughs> and so, um, you know, uh, Black people may make a more connection to that than people who are kind of this... Uh, expressing their own experiences. And so I think, you know, that also helps form. Sure. Um, uh, we reminded of uh, Richmond as 
being the heart of the Confederacy um, right, at yeah. the time of the Civil War, uh, being the the uh, the capital for of uh, for this the Confederate states. But in addition to that, I guess it was one of the oldest uh, places for being able to uh, buy and sell slaves. And so I, Shaco Slip and uh, right. Bottoms and all of that area, I guess were well-known areas for uh, the sale and purchase and uh, of, uh, of uh, slaves. And um, Now, you know, one of the things that I tell people symbolically was, a, a, and it wasn't done intentionally, because I don't, I don't want to say that all of this was intentional, but when we moved our office um, down off 9th Street, my office faced the White House of Confederacy, so I would get to see it every day. I thought that is so offensive. <laughs> but um, you so know, if you so in seeing that every day, or how you as you thought, uh, what what would you say in explaining that to um, to people now? Uh, those experiences, and what would be what do you think their takeaway should should be from that? Well, one of the things is I'm a lover of history. And so I love to read and I love to find out new things. So reading um, different things and finding out the context of things, I think is important. And so, uh, and I also think that there's an opportunity for reflection when you go back and you think about things that have happened to you and how you responded to them. And a lot of things are situational. in terms of you know how you respond to the experiences you're being exposed to, uh, you know participating um, in marches. I think I first one I did I was about eleven, and I think we had a junior thing at church for NAACP, and we were marching downtown. You know when they were trying to desegregate uh, the oh, movies and that kind of yeah, and so. Some of those, I mean, so you heard these experiences and families and people would talk about, you know, what would happen in the city and that kind of thing. So I think growing up, you begin to take that information in, but then you have to figure out what to do with it. Because it wasn't just that you were uh, a receiver of information, you did nothing with it. It has to kind of um, marinate with you and you know, kind of figure out, okay, well, this is what they're saying. This is my experience. How would I react to this? And so I did find that um, my advocacy um, piece kind of heightened up during that time in terms of trying to make sure uh, uh, my clients got the best as well. An example of that is I had these um, siblings, a boy and a girl, whose family was pretty intact, but their mother was experiencing alcoholism. So they wanted to put them in foster care. And I somehow, I found out that they were placing children in private schools. And so I advocated for them to go to private schools and people were like, because they were sending some of the white kids there, but they weren't sending black kids. And so I ended up being successful in getting them to go to um, one to a military school and one to a private school on Tappahannock. So that's an example of what I would say my advocacy. Okay. And so um, you obviously uh, been able to have lots of experiences related to your advocacy. Um, What civil rights or human rights issues um, do you think you embrace or have embraced over your, your life experience and what was most important about it? 
Well, you know, I think it's, it's a wide range of things. I told you about the marches and, you know, during the college years. Uh, one of the things that I got into in terms of child welfare that became a major issue for child welfare workers was the transracial adoptions that were pushed in the late 60s and early 70s. And so um, many of the uh, Richmond was not doing transracial adoptions when I was in the unit. But then there was a big push for that. And um, I ended up, after I finished um, uh, graduate school, because I left Richmond and went to Atlanta University for my MSW, and I worked in uh, Boston in child welfare. And I got accepted to a post-master's program at University of Michigan. And they had this unit called uh, POAC, I think. And they were a group of white parents who were promoting uh, transracial adoption. And around that time in 72, uh, before I actually finished school, uh, the Black social workers had issued a statement against uh, transracial adoption. And it kind of stopped departments from doing it. And so I actually ended up writing an article, a chap book chapter with Dr. Ladner uh, on um, transracial adoptions. And looking Dr. at- Dr. Joyce Ladner? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And she was my mentor for my doctoral program. And so I had the opportunity to meet people who were really ensconced in doing a lot of things. And so that also was a motivation for me. And so uh, while I was in Boston, I had gone to Michigan for this training. I remember uh, one of the ladies there, a uh, white lady from uh, Bellingham, Washington, I'll never forget. We were sitting having dinner one night and she told me that her sister had ran off with a black man and had a couple of children. They were having difficulty. And I asked her, she was taking a man and she said, oh, I can't do that. You know, that's not something I could do. And then the next day at the workshops we were having at the University of Michigan, each of us had to do a presentation on a child welfare issue. And her presentation was to that she wanted to create an agency that focus on doing transracial adoption. They had to take me out of the room because it was like, she just told me she had biracial niece and nephew and she wouldn't deal with them, but she was gonna create an agency that was gonna deal with transracial adoption. Mm -hmm. I thought, what irony is this? And so um, doing that training, uh, we were the first class and I think it was about 30 of us and we were from all over the United States. And so um, I was able to actually um, meet a lady in a training who was uh, later hired to do adoptions for special needs kids in DC at um, Pierce Warwick. And she hired me to come to DC. That's how I got back to DC to do that. And we worked in uh, adoption with special needs. And so we were doing a lot of advocates around that. And so I've had, uh, I can tell many stories about those interactions. And uh, I think out of the 30 people, it was four of us who were African-American. Uh, and we were from, one was from St. Louis and, um, and then one was from um, Atlanta and one was from Michigan. And I was uh, at that time living in Boston. Um, and so I, um, 
found Boston to be very enlightening because I moved from Atlanta to Boston. And so people were saying to me that, um, well, I know you had a hard time in Atlanta because, you know, of the race issue and all that. But, um, okay. Can we call it that? I'm sorry. Um, so, um, I found more racism in Boston than I ever saw down south. And it, I moved there in 75, and that was the year they were having a busing issue with the craziness. Yeah, <laughs> and I do mean South Boston riots and a variety of things, yes. Right, yeah. So, um, you know, that was an experience. And it was, um, while unpleasant, I often tell people I'm glad I had it because people told you that if you went north, they didn't have racism and everything, but it wasn't true. In fact, one of the ministers in Atlanta used to call Boston up south <laughs> um, because of the uh, detentions and that kind of thing. And uh, and so I was actually the first employee of Roxbury Children's Services when it split from the parent agency, which was Boston Children's Service. And I believe it was the first child welfare agency in the United States. So, um, so you had history, um, bumping up to reality and of the times. And so, you know, it was always uh, something that was uh, going on racially in Boston. So it was, you couldn't divorce yourself from it. It was just constant. And so I think that makes a difference in how people respond to cert certain situations because you kind of couldn't get away from it. Sure. Right. So who are the persons that most influenced you and uh, your thinking and, and why? Well, I'll start with um, my family first. Um, certainly my grandfather. Um, I have an aunt I'm named after. That was her. I have my mother who had a, such a strong reserve. And when she wanted something to happen, it would happen. <laughs> um, and I would say... Um, my sister, a lot of people thought we were joined at the hip. They thought we were uh, twins, which we weren't. Uh, and so we had a lot of experiences together. And she uh, fought her own racism. She ended up going into accounting. And so she would work often work in a lot of places where there were males. And she would tell me the things that she had to do to kind of make sure that sexism wasn't impacting her along with being African-American. But... Um, well, I'm committed and an advocate. My sister also had a very strong personality and what was in her head came out of her mouth. And so, <laughs> so not much of a filter, you mean? Yeah, no. Uh, said what she thought. She said what she thought. And, um, and interesting enough, um, you know, she had some experiences and we would, you know, collaborate those on. I remember she's telling me when she went to, she worked at a bank in the accounting department and she went to a conference or something. And so they passed out cigars to all the men and they skipped her. So she got up and went and picked one up. And I said, what did you do? And she said, well, I knew I wasn't going to smoke it, but I didn't want them to act like I wasn't there and they wouldn't, wouldn't acknowledge me. So <laughs> that's the Good kind point. of person. That's the kind of person she was. And um, 
and similar in Boston, because how I got to Boston was through her. She wanted me to come and try to work up there. And, you know, we had, uh, she had gotten married and moved to Chicago. So they had moved to Boston. So we hadn't been together in a while. So, so I, she paid for my way to come and I got a job and we got the Roxbury Children's Service. So that's how I got to Boston. Um, but then I uh, ended up leaving Boston, moving back to DC and um, working in an adoption agency, as I said, with special needs. And then dealing with the whole issue of child welfare in the district, which was very political. Uh, you wouldn't know it on his face, but it was like, who got adoption contracts, who was doing the placement, who was being hired, and all that kind of thing seemed to have, been, have some bias in that. And the people who ran the department um, often weren't that enamored with social workers. And so there was all this kind of tension between that and, um, and around who that. Who influenced you in those experiences? Um, it's so many people, gosh. Um, I would say uh, Johnny Pendleton was my supervisor and she was a very laid back person, um, very forward thinking. And I think her nature was appealing in the sense that she wasn't a historical kind of person or, uh, you know, that kind of thing, but she was able to engage people and, and use a lot of humor. And I, I think that was important. Uh, I, uh, Dr. Ladner certainly influenced me greatly in terms of working with her in my dissertation, um, which was on teen pregnancy. And I uh, ended up being on the mayor's um, plan for teenage, teenage pregnancy prevention. And I was on a committee with her. I ended up writing an evaluation report that under that, her. That was uh, the mayor of Washington, DC? Yes, yeah. Who was the mayor at that time? Uh, Marion Barry. And actually, uh, I ended up, when I came here working on his campaign, I found a letter a, a year or so ago of thanking me for being on his transition team. Um, so I, I had a political sort of leaning. And so I think in terms of uh, actually persons uh, that I think assisted me um, starting out, um, even like Doug Wilder, who gave me a recommendation for graduate school. And um, so I think beyond family, there are friends, um, a lot of friends that I have amassed over the years who have like-minded thinking. And so uh, one of my good friends, um, Alvin Patterson uh, Conyers, um, was from Williamsburg. We, got, we became friends at uh, Howard. And uh, we still, uh, and she was pretty much a strong advocate. In fact, I often tell people, uh, uh, she was one of the people who went in the building and student takeover in 1968. And uh, all of the, I tell people the story all the time. People would tell their parents they weren't involved in anything because they didn't want, the parents were calling saying, you know, don't get involved in that stuff at Howard, blah, blah, blah. And so she and my other friend from Richmond went in and they slept in the um, administration building in 68. And um, when the Ebony came out the next month, 
their picture was on the front because they had in, uh, started out of the building and they were standing on front whenever whoever took the picture for Ebony. And so when they and at that time, you know, every black family had an Ebony. <laughs> Ebony magazine and Jet magazine, they were staples to black right. families. And so they were um, caught because they had been telling their parents they weren't over there. And so, you know, how do you deny it when you're on the national magazine front cover? So so that's actually a, an interesting way to, to put it. Uh, if you were uh, a student now, uh, having looked back on what you had been through in terms of your being at Howard University and taking over the president's office and the administration building with your other colleagues, uh, what now, would I you didn't tell younger people? In that because I had an aunt who threatened me. <laughs> so you said you did not participate? I participated in the marches. I didn't go in the building. Ah, okay. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what would you tell a young person nowadays, um, you know, in terms of whether they should get involved in something like that? And, and what would be some of your thinking in terms of from a social justice standpoint? What might you say? You know, one of the things I think about life, it gives you different perspectives at different stages in life. And so I certainly don't think that I would say to a person that they could use a form of protest to change systems. One of my criticisms with the uh, takeover a couple of years ago is I don't know that people had planned it out as, uh, as thoroughly as the group in 68. Because they have written about the 68. Uh, actually, there's a whole book called uh, Century Plus One, I think details and has pictures of all the things that happened during the 68. And so it was more planful. So when the people went into the building, we had over 2,000 students who, who slept in the building, whereas I think the one that we had in Howard recently, there might have been a, a couple hundred students. So I think you had more of a buy-in. I think uh, during the 68, it was more focused on um, process. It's like they wanted a, a student judiciary system because students had protested um, um, Lewis Her Hershey, who was in charge of the um, uh, people they were sending to Vietnam. They were coming to college campuses and drafting people into service. And so they also wanted the Africa, um, you know, more uh, courses on African-Americans. And, and that has happened. That was a change in the curriculum. So I think they had more concrete, um, I think I'll say we had more concrete wishes for the university in terms of changes and they were implemented and they still maintain today. So I would say that if you're gonna do it, then you know be clear of who, uh, who's in charge of the um, organization, what is it that you really want and have a plan for, uh, doing that. So it's not just the idea of taking over without a plan. So that would be my, I would not say people shouldn't protest or shouldn't challenge. I'm just saying be planful about it. Um, you know, I don't know that everybody totally agreed with everything that everybody did. But when we went in, even with the 2000 students, when they left the building, it was completely clean. Um, they had arranged for people to donate food everything was organized. And at that time they had the, um, you know, with the phone system, you needed operators and they had found students who had that experience and they were using the phones and they didn't destroy the building. A lot of times people now do it. It's like go in, they leave the trash, they 
destroy the building and then say they want something. You know what I'm saying? So I, I'm, I'm saying that I think the organization was better. I'm not saying everybody agreed with everything because um, we had some pretty radical people who were participating as well. But I think it was uh, better organized. It was uh, in some ways very frightening for people uh, because um, I think the following year they had another protest and they actually had people on campus with guns and that kind of thing. That wasn't, you know, settling. And then also in 68, they had the riots after Martin Luther King. And that was like, the whole city blew up and was on fire. <laughs> and so- yeah, That's um, an interesting point you make, if I can interrupt for just a sec. So when you say um, that, that things sort of um, were interrupted in 1968, and you mentioned the riots after, after MLK died uh, in, in Washington and other cities across the country, you um, uh, mentioned that, that things um, were broken up. Um, and obviously I can remember both coming to Washington and having seen some of the things. I talked to a, a native Washingtonian who said that uh, they thought that it was more students that were breaking up stuff and throwing stuff as opposed to native Washingtonians. Uh, having been there at that time, what would you say? I don't know if I would say that, but uh, I also don't have any documentation. But what my witness was, um, I remember leaving campus because I lived off 16th Street then. And a group of us were walking down 15th and this it's a little store, corner store there that they just updated after all these years because it's now the community is changing. And I remember we were walking by and it was um, a group of little boys. They looked like they were nine or 10 in there. And I think they were, you know, lo uh, looting. And the police were tear gassing them and we stopped to, you know, to look and then they chased us away from looking because they, I guess they didn't want us to say anything. And so with that incident, I mean, I'm sure that those kids weren't students of Howard <laughs> and and I'm not saying no Howard students did anything. Um, my brother-in-law was the, um, at that time, it was just before he and my sister got married, worked at the Safeway on Columbia Road. He was um, assistant manager. And the people coming down Columbia Road were breaking in those stores left and right. And it wasn't near Howard. So I don't know that I would say it was Howard students. You know what I'm saying? Because it was yeah, in different. No, I, I, I didn't mean just Howard students. I said that there were students. students. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, but I don't know that. I can't. I from what I witnessed, I couldn't know that that okay. they were just students. All now right. they might have been younger people, and people assumed they were students from different schools, or that kind of thing. But um, I would say it might be younger people. Certainly, I didn't see too many older people. Okay. So. Um, but so, I think, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so based on that, um, just doing the quick comparison or, or so context, since you mentioned that was important uh, to you, uh, what would you say would be the most important social justice issues of today? Oh, Lord knows racism. <laughs> um, we keep going back to the same points. Um, you know, we've had several points of, of in our history where people have, you know, um, protested and lobbied for rights and 
you know, our original sin is the whole issue of slavery. And I think people can't admit to it as an institution and the aftermath of what African-Americans have had to face as a result of slavery. And um, you, when you hear people on the news, when you say race, that somebody's racist, um, you seldom uh, hear white people own it. Um, but they are supremacists and they have done things that are, you know, are, well, most people, because it'd be racist, but they say it isn't. And, um, and so I think racism and um, probably sexism along with that. And the whole issue of xenophobia, because we see other groups being involved in that now. And so I think if we don't combat the issue of racism, that we'll keep having trouble over and over again, because this is not the first rodeo with racism. We've gone, we can just read from history in the different periods of how people have tried to move things forward. And sometimes they have been very successful. And then we have a backlash. And, um, you know, sort of like the post-Civil uh, right. War Reconstruction period and right. the period that followed. Remember, I also went to school in Atlanta. And when I moved there, uh, actually one of the persons and faculty that I really enjoyed and got me involved in politics down there was Eva Frost. And um, she had our class, we had a social policy class, and she uh, urged us to volunteer in the Maynard Jackson campaign when he became the first black mayor of Atlanta. And so we got to go to the victory party and all that kind of thing. So just kind of being upfront in that experience, all of these made an impression on me. I think it helped me try to, it doesn't necessarily make things clear to how you're going to deal with it because you see these victories and then you see these lapses. So it's almost like last week with George Floyd when the person was convicted. And then during the week, they killed, what, five or six more people doing the same, you know, in questionable situations. And so um, some of us have talked about is why is it when police see Black people, they have to shoot because they think they have a gun when it's a phone or some other object. But when they see white people with um, weapons, they are able to take them in, never shoot at them. And, and they might even been threatened with a weapon. And so um, I don't, it, it, to me, if that's, I mean, how is that possible? Uh, the example of that 15 uh, year old in, um, is that Minnesota? Um, who actually killed two people. His mother drove him to another state. He killed somebody. The police saw him with the guns. They never roughed him up, never shot at him. They, you know, they let him out of jail. Wisconsin. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm -hmm. They are yeah, so, in Wisconsin. Yeah. Wisconsin, but, uh, yeah. So, so, but, but you raise another issue that I'd like to sort of probe a little bit. Um, you talked about your understanding of social justice and advocacy, and uh, you have some very. You mentioned the importance of of racism and sexism and calling it what it is, um, and the fact that you said that perhaps things haven't changed as much as we may think. Um, what might you offer as a, a way of being able to look at that that differently now that you have sort of the wisdom of 
many years to be able to look at these, these issues in context. Well, I'm gonna say this, is we have to learn to tell the truth. There was slavery, it had an aftermath, uh, it affected people's progress, it's still affecting people's progress, it's still affecting what people get on, on how people view them. They have um, the stories that about a group of people, primarily African-Americans, are entirely false. They won't even teach it in schools. And so it's almost like we can't tell the truth. And so I think there's a backlash because people can't handle, as they, it was a movie, they can't handle the truth. Is they don't want to be seen as negative. But you have a, a group of people who come to the country, took over land that wasn't theirs, who decimated communities like Native Americans and all of that. And so what I've decided to say to students, and I give them a lot of over his, uh, overview of history because I'm a history buff, it's like read different things. Like I bury my heart at Wound Knee. Um, different experiences of people who had trouble with the government and it's the United States. And that doesn't mean that we don't belong here because we helped build the country. And so I remember a quote by Stokely Carmichael then said that when he went down south, he saw black people working from sun up to sun down. So he was wondering where the lazy came in. But yet and still they say black people are not forward enough. They don't not productive enough to be considered that these things that they get, they don't want to give them welfare or anything because they really need to learn how to work. Well, they built the country. Understand what I'm saying? So why can't you tell that story? And they built it for no, they didn't get paid for doing it. Okay, thank you. So, um, so my understanding is, is that the work is not done. I think we have to learn different ways and in interpretation, but I think it's important to understand the history. You can't start it, wake up one day as point one and you see one thing and say, that's what I'm gonna do. I think it's important to understand the context of how racism is um, promoted. And as a result of uh, last year or year before, I read a book that actually this guy in, talked about Richmond in it, uh, 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 how to make a racist. A growing up racist or something. I don't know if I have the title right. But I also read another book about uh, dog whistle politics. And I've, so I've started and I read Hillbilly Equity. So I'm saying, I'm trying to understand the other cultures and what makes them, um, when I read Hillbilly Equity and the kinds of social problems they had in uh, the Welsh Belt, they were actually sounded worse than the ones that Blacks had in the city. But yet and still, you never hear about people being lazy or violent or uh, abusing drugs, except it's really focused on one group of people. So I think we have to learn how to tell the truth. We have to teach it to students. We have to have it in schools. And people have to confront themselves. A lot of times people say they don't want to do it because they don't want to feel guilty, even though they said I wasn't the person doing it. But if you're benefiting it from it, then you have to acknowledge it. I'm not saying you have to give up anything, but you at least have to acknowledge that you had a, at least the privilege to gain something without someone um, demeaning you or, or saying you aren't worth something when you have already shown that worth time and time again. And so I think building up confidence and particularly uh, people of color, black people, African-Americans, 
so that they have the kind of confidence to know that they that they come from people who do things and that um that they shouldn't feel ashamed of who they are because somebody comes on the news every night and talk about who what black person was killed or that kind of thing and, and if you don't do your history work then you're going to believe some of the same things that people say on the news because sometimes that's the only time they do it and now what i'm finding with a lot of young people they don't even want to read the news let alone though I will say it's really hard to listen to the news these days, but you have to do some preparatory work to understand the context of what you're dealing with yeah, before so, you can make plans. So uh, you, uh, I appreciate your sharing uh, some of your perspectives and how you got there um, and the importance of history. Um, I know that you have written a book with uh, Dr. Annie Brown, uh, who has also uh, been on uh, a podcast episode, um, but uh, you have shared some of your experiences from the late 60s and 70s um, and your role in terms of advocating for change. Um, what might you say to help listeners understand a little bit about the importance of that period and why that was something that you felt helped in sort of making you who you are and why that was such a, uh, a cauldron of change? Well, I think at that point, um, and actually it probably started earlier than at, in the 50s, but I was, wasn't available because I was a, either a baby or something, you know what I'm saying? But what happened is, you know, you had the 54 decision, you had other um, milestones, the Voting Rights Acts, all those things uh, kind of propelled the next step where people were beginning to feel that they had the right to demand more and more. And so I came up at the uh, sort of almost at the end of that period. And then the next period was people were demanding the rights. And so people felt that with the victories from the early legislation and that kind of thing that you had the right to then move forward. And so I think, in my thinking, uh, things were changing. They weren't changing as fast as people like, but they were changing. And there was a notable difference because I ended up growing up, uh, I lived in New York and Ohio, but um, in Virginia. And, um, you know, segregation was there. It was, you know, it was visible. And and so it was hard to say that you didn't have something when you saw it every day. Uh, if, for example, you know, uh, I think you spent some time in Virginia, like when they didn't want to desegregate the movie theaters, they closed all of them down so nobody could go. So there were real distinct behaviors that were going on. And then after the 60s, people had to desegregation and people were able to move to different neighborhoods, go to different schools. And so people saw that as movement, and it was. And then there were uh, actually laws that were promoted, you know, so people could vote, so people, you know, could have fair housing and all that. And so all of that was movement. And so now we're back at talking about some of those same things and trying to figure out who qualifies. And the last four years were very challenging because those things were really rolled back in terms of what was available for people to do. So if you're looking at what's happening today, then we have to assess where we are. Now, what does it mean? Because they have some bills in Congress now that they're discussing about 
uh, police reform and uh, oh, education, a whole lot of things that we are now facing with that have detrimental uh, impact on African-American communities in particular and others uh, as well, is how do we educate when college courses, I mean, costs have gone so high. Uh, so they have the, uh, Biden has suggested uh, forgiving loans. Uh, people are finishing school with enormous debt. And so they can't really buy homes or start families and do those kinds of things. So the way that society works, um, it kind of holds people back from being successful. And we don't actually have to do that because they keep saying that we are the most advanced country, the wealthiest country. And you wonder why, if you have all that knowledge and money, that you can't help people. And so I think people have to look, begin to look at what those policies and practices and things that go on in your neighborhood um, that are, you know, detrimental to societies and just say, this is wrong. You have to come out and speak against it. And you can do it in different ways because now we have technology like this podcast. People are doing things like that. Um, they're having, um, my church had something on um, Saturday or the WIN Interface Network um, demanding that some property they wanted to develop in the, one of the uh, black areas that the part of that property be uh, designated to those groups so they could develop their own homes and that kind of thing and not be pushed out of D.C. with gentrification. So there are many social issues. Uh, it's hard to kind of be in all of them. But I think uh, I would suggest to young people, if you find something that you're passionate about, work with. And it could be just one thing. It could be this housing that you want to work on. But that would have an impact if you were able to organize and demand the uh, rights around housing we adhere to. Um, like I said, there are plenty of things that people can do. So I would so, certainly say do your homework first so you know what you're talking about. Uh, then you know, choose an area because you're not going to be able to do all of it. Uh, get involved in your uh, professional organizations. I know when they were having issues at child welfare down at CFSA, uh, the um, local chapter of NASW got very involved in helping make some of those changes and let people in the policymaking uh, arena know what those issues were. And so there's so many ways and uh, of doing that. And I, uh, had the opportunity to participate in these different groups. And so I've sort of have a potpourri of experiences of dealing with things, trying to advocate and change policies. Okay. So you mentioned CFSA, you mean the, the District of yeah. Columbia. Right. Child, um, Child and Family Services. Family Services Administration. Right. And uh, if... I guess this is sort of coming to our conclusion, since you you appreciate your having shared both the the context of your experiences and the wealth of experiences. Um, and you mentioned as a professor that you tell your students a number of things, and you offered just now uh, what you think might be some of the things that uh, that people should think about in terms of getting involved with. If you were to offer the next generation of of social workers, uh, where you think uh, they can make a difference, uh, what would you say? 
Well, I think one, if I'm looking at social workers broadly, and, um, you know, we're having all this discussion now on anti-racism, is that the profession hasn't really lived up to its um, promise. And so I think the first thing is to um, look at what it is that we said we were about. And if uh, uh, Speck and Courtney wrote a book uh, probably in the late 90s called uh, Unfaithful Angels, where they talk about how social work abandoned its uh, mission. And so reading things like that gives you a sort of an understanding of what it is that we intend to do in social work. And if we are saying that we're all inclusive, we shouldn't have exclusive policies. And so um, an example is, is if, if you talk to someone who might've gone to a different type of school, and so we never talked about people of color, but they say, well, we have diversity because we look at class and all these other things. Uh, Jerome uh, Shealy wrote a, um, an article on multiple oppressions and where he talked about, I think, in our, um, I forget which social work document, it talked about either 15 or 16 different types of oppression. Is that when you water things down, do you get to the real purpose of what you're supposed to be doing? And sometimes you need to pick out priorities and deal with those. And the major one, one of the things he talked about, though, um, was the issue of racism. Does that, is that a higher order of oppression than say, um, I, mean, I can't think of something right now, but another type of uh, uh, diversification uh, issue. And so the issue is not that if you deal with some of the major problems, that some of the uh, other problems that are significant can be dealt with as well. And so I think those kinds of articles are important for students to read so they understand what other people are saying. They can agree or not to agree with whatever saying, but I do think that um, now that this whole issue with George Floyd came up and this year I've been going to the um, sessions they had on anti-racism, but I think people have to look into themselves and see how they uh, weren't anti-racist in the first place. And so that's what goes back to my statement about telling the truth. You know, are we doing what we say we are doing and are we promoting what we say we're gonna do? And uh, when you talk about social justice, how do you make sure that happens and that everybody has a fair chance? If you feel that you are not really open to hearing from what other people have to say, then that's a problem. Wow. Well, I think we're, uh, we've covered a, a great deal of the waterfront and you've presented a number of very important issues. Uh, thank you for being able to uh, to offer your, uh, not just pearls of wisdom, but your perspectives on a number of important issues related to race and racism, the importance of child welfare and the role of social work. And so uh, appreciate the contribution you've made as both a social work pioneer, uh, as well as your work in, uh, in child welfare and in mentoring uh, students and, uh, and faculty colleagues and people who are also uh, offering their contributions to the world. And so I uh, appreciate you and thank you again for, for joining me on this edition of Grand Stories, a podcast related to social welfare 
social justice and the importance of community. So okay, thank, thank you. Thank you. I didn't get to my DC years, but that's okay. <laughs> but we'll uh, we we can come back to that at a at a later time. So okay. appreciate it. Thank okay. you so much. This podcast was sponsored by Howard University School of Social Work's Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HU underscore gerontology, G-E-R-O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y, to stay up to date. The music you hear is performed by the Howard University Jazz Ensemble under the direction of Fred Irby III, professor of music at Howard University. I hope you'll join me in two weeks as we explore more social justice and aging issues. Thank you for listening.